This is womensleadershipsuccess.com radio, episode number 49. Would you like to learn how to motivate the people who work for you and create a more positive future? That's why I want you to meet today an incredible author and one of the top communicators in the United States. He will share why good communication is the lifeblood of relationships and great leadership. And listen for a special offer at the end of the show on how to get free chapters of my new program, The Winning Career. Welcome to Women's Leadership Podcast, showing you how to influence people, improve your performance, and advance your career. Brought to you by women's leadership and career expert Sabrina Brom and womensleadershipsuccess.com. Here's your chance to meet women trendsetters leading the way to success, accomplishment, and balance in business and life. No matter if you're a manager, CEO, or entrepreneur, join Sabrina for coaching and no-nonsense advice to improve your career and bottom line. This is Women's Leadership Success Radio with Sabrina Brom. Today we're talking to Terry Pierce. He is a former executive of IBM and for many years taught leadership communication at the University of California, Berkeley, the Haas Graduate Business School, and the London Business School. Terry is also the founder and president of Leadership Communication, a coaching and consulting company with clients that include CEOs, senior public officials, and elected leaders. His latest book is the newly revised third edition of Leading Out Loud, a guide for engaging others in creating the future. Hello, Terry. Hi. Nice to be here. I've really enjoyed your, your book. Uh, I've enjoyed it so much that I've bought three copies for other people. It's, it's a wonderful book, and it's so so chock full of information that um, there's no way we're going to get through even a tiny bit in the 25 minutes we'll be talking. But uh, here we go. Um, I was I was intrigued by your going back to college after you had, you were already one of the top people in the field of leadership communication. You went back and earned a master's degree in mythology and depth psychology. Can you tell us what led to that and how it changed your perspective on communication? Oh, sure. I, I was doing a lot of work in London at the time, in the London Business School, and also uh, in other you know, multinational companies. And what I noticed was that there was a distinct difference in how cultures were able to uh, perceive communication and how they were inspired. And I was curious about that. I'd always been interested in the work of Joseph Campbell and, you know, some other mythologists, but I didn't really know, I didn't really understand what was going on. So I wanted to go back and, and understand mythology and its, its root uh, and understand depth psychology so that I could interpret it and then actually make something, you know, make it make a difference, make it, make it work in my field. So I went back so that I could understand how various cultures are motivated or inspired in the same way and that's what uh, that's that's what I gained out of that uh, the program, which, by the way, is still going on. I'm still a PhD candidate, and they keep rattling my cage about when I'm going to finish. <laughs> <laughs> that's not unusual. So, no, I know. How did that How did that change your perspective on leadership communication? Well, uh, first of all, I knew that there were certain stories that would appeal to broader audiences, and I didn't really understand why. So by studying mythology, I was able to, to focus in on the stories and the elements of stories that really did connect regardless of where someone was from or what their cultural background was. For example, uh, 
um, I learned that you know there are certain things that are common to all cultures. For example, you know, obviously birth and death are the, the obvious ones, right? Mm-hmm. But then in between, there are a lot of phases of life that really are meaningful to a number of cultures, and those are basically stories that we make up to help us ex- help explain the mystery that we see. So if you looked at it fundamentally, uh, you know, from birth, then you have you know, kind of this adolescent phase, and you have a leaving of home or a, an initiation, which is also a myth. Uh, and then you have a growing older, a becoming a wise person, uh, going into the phases of life that all cultures do. So I wanted to go deeper into that, get more granular with it, and understand the stories that were common so that I could weave them into to leadership communication that had to do with change where people could relate to it emotionally as well as intellectually. So what is it about stories that make them touch us so deeply? Why are we also moved by a story as opposed to uh, the statistics or the facts? Well, your your uh, nomenclature is perfect because we are moved by stories and we're convinced by facts. And it really, I mean, neurobiologically, there's an explanation for this that that we hear stories through our limbic system, which is that marvelous emotional control system that we have that was developed in our brain about 60 million years ago when mammals crawled out on the earth. And we had to relate to our young. We had to relate to other people in an emotional way so that we could form families and be loyal. And that was unique. Of course, the cortex is a monster in terms of, you know, it it helps us relate reasonably and logically. Very, very valuable, but it's not where we make commitments from. In fact, stories are part of that sinusoidal, that kind of idea of continuum that every person on Earth uh, relates to. We all live our lives someplace between once upon a time and happily ever after. Uh, it is the nature of the human experience, which we can't see because we're so close to it. And there are now philosophers and, and psychologists who refer to the human being as homo narens, or the storytelling animal. It's the water we swim in, so it's very, very difficult to see. But as soon as we enter it, we recognize it as home. You, at one place in your book, you say communication is the lifeblood of relationships. Well, of course. I mean, when was the last time you figured out whether or not you were in love? Yeah, you know, <laughs> exactly. Uh, or if you're if you're sitting around a campfire telling stories, when was the last time you heard somebody say, "I disagree with that"? So, you know, the, the two things are different. The way we relate and the way we actually commit is through our story and our emotion, and then the way we calculate is through our cortex, which is quite handy, but it isn't the way that we actually get commitment. It's not the way that we're inspired. Uh, can you give an example of someone that inspires or inspired others and how women listening can start to develop that quality in themselves? Oh, sure. And, in fact, women you know, particularly uh, deal in inspiration and are much better at it than men are uh, because they're, they're much closer, uh, tend to be. Actually, you know, physiologically, there's a lot of proof about this, that, that emotional intelligence comes much more easily to women than it does to men. Now, there's new evidence that suggests that that can be developed, that men can actually you know, develop that capability and that women can regress. But the fact is that the way we're born, because the women do the nurturing, is they're much better at empathy and they're much better at inspiration. Um, the, way they can, the way they can develop it is to study it, uh, to make sure that they understand that the balance that they have naturally is the one that's the most needed, and then bring both, not to eskew one in favor of the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my, I've coached a lot of women executives who, you know, believed that they had to be, you know, logical and more masculine in order to succeed, and that's not the case. What they really had to do was to 
was to bring forth more of their feminine and match it with their natural tendency to be logical and reasonable uh, so that balance was the most important thing, not moving one way or the other. Same is true for men, by the way. Can you uh, give us an example? Do you have a story that you can think of of someone that's like that? Oh, sure, I can. I've coached a lot of women that have moved um, a long way and women that have taught me uh, Donna Poor, who was uh, at one time one of the 50 most powerful women in the world, was I met her in Costa when she was at Schwab, and she was the chief information officer there, and then later on went on to run Drugstore.com. And Suzanne Lyons is another one. Lynette Diley was another. But the one that really stands out to me, and the one that I think that was the most balanced, was Laura Tyson, who was the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors for Clinton. And and later on, I was really fortunate enough to be able to work with her when she was my dean at the University of California. And later, she moved to become the dean of the London Business School and asked me to come over there and teach. And I had a chance to interview her uh, for a, a program that I was producing uh, some some CDs uh, on women in leadership. And she was really articulate about it. Uh, she was She was one of the best executives I've ever met. And she also had uh, the, the best balance of anyone I've ever met. When I asked her about uh, this business, and at the time the nomenclature was, well, you know, Laura, tell me about work-life balance and what that means. And she was more articulate than anyone I'd ever talked to. She said, well, this is something that men and women talk about, but women have to act on. And then she went on to describe what it was like to be a mother and why she made that decision, but why she also didn't need to sacrifice her effectiveness uh, in order to do that and to be a terrific mother, to play that role, which was a natural one for her, but also to be a very powerful, reasonable, and logical executive that moved people uh, through the combination of those two things. Wow. That's really, really a, a great story. And it kind of segues into the one of the main points of your book is that the val- the thing that a leader wants to do is to keep, editing the story of what's going on in the organization or the company um, to begin to make it more powerful, more vibrant, more alive, to give people something really great to work towards. Um, can you talk some more about that? Sure. In fact, this is, a, this is a psychological term as well, this business of editing the story, that when someone goes you know, into personal therapy or they go into to some relationship where they want to, you know, change their lives, they're basically asking the other person to help them edit their story. They, the, the story is basically where we've been and where we are is the basis for where we're going. So when a leader goes into an organization that is in some way dysfunctional or not, you know, not acting properly in a way that's going to make it successful, they have to be aware of the past and the present in order to get to the future. So that talent, that, that knowing of the story, it's a matter of context. Where were we, where are we, and where are we going? Uh, those three things are the essence of leadership communication. If you can really articulate those, not just logically, but emotionally, then you're going to be able to be successful at inspiring people. Do you have an example of that? Well, I have some good and some bad, sure, I do. Okay. Uh, you know, the bad would be, and, and actually people can get good and bad right out of Apple because it's been through several phases of this in its lifetime. Mm-hmm. The bad would would have been Gil Emilio, who, as you probably remember, was the CEO there for an interim period of time. And, in fact, after Steve Jobs left the first time, they went through a number of different CEOs, each one of them trying to articulate what the future of Apple would be. 
but hardly any of them captured the past and the present as the as the as the goal as the as the basis for where they were going in the future. Emilio was particularly um, he he was probably the worst at it in that it took him several months to really kind of articulate where he thought Apple would go. And the metaphor that he used was a flashlight. And he said that Apple would become the maglight of the technical world. Well, first of all, if, you, if you'd ever seen a maglight, uh, that, was, that was one thing. Then you'd have some idea because maglight was a you know, very carefully, intricately designed flashlight that was kind of state-of-the-art at the time. Mm-hmm. But hardly anybody had ever seen one. The second thing was that that was what Apple was already famous for. So he was really articulating where they'd been, uh, not even where they were or where they were going. So it was a colossal failure. People shrugged their shoulders and said, what is he talking about? Uh, On the other hand, uh, successful turnarounds typically have someone that goes in there and says, you know, look, under these circumstances, we were really successful. These were our values. This is what we stood for. And then we lost our way. And in losing our way, um, we lost our edge. If we could then shape our future based on where we were and where we are, we'll be successful. Probably the best example of that I know uh, was Charles Schwab, who was able to go into his company. Um, as you know, it was successful. He sold it to the Bank of America. It became a disaster. And then he rallied his management troop. They bought it back for, I think, $52 million. And a few years later, it was the it had the highest market cap of any company in the world surpassing Merrill Lynch because he was able to articulate its values of where they'd been and where they were as the basis for where they were going and absolutely captured the market by focusing on customer satisfaction, uh, integrity, and all of the values that were important to him. So that was probably the best example that I would have. What I hear from you is that there's, there's stories that really work well and there's stories that don't. And that it sounds like it's really important to pay attention and practice those. In your book, you have a wonderful called a thing called the Framework for Personal Leadership Communication Guide, where you actually delineate how to go through and start figuring out where you've been, where you are, and where you're going. And um, it seems like something that people should, women and men, should practice before they're doing these stories in public. Well, absolutely. If you have a, if you're charged with making a major change, or if you have a change that you want to, you want to make, and you're going to be the leader of that change, it's really important to include all the necessary elements. And what I've tried to do in the book, uh, as you know, in the first half of the book, I really talk about the necessity to know yourself and what characteristics the leader herself uh, has to be able to inculcate and to be able to articulate. But the second half of the book is really a tool. And it suggests that there are kind of four things that we need to focus on when we're when we're building a platform or a guide that will be the basis for every communication we'll have about this change. It suggests, for example, that competence and trustworthiness is the first uh, aspect of that. That would include, you know, being clear about what the problem is, what the changes we're trying to propose, uh, the evidence that that's needed. It would include one's credentials and vulnerabilities. You know, what experience does one have that gives them the capability of leading this change? What are the vulnerabilities? Because by sharing our vulnerabilities, we tend to build trust. What help will I need? Um, displaying empathy, uh, displaying gratitude, uh, acknowledging resistance, anticipating what the resistance will be, uh, explaining what the commonality uh, is. And then, of course, articulating at least and, and probably revealing 
what your personal motivation is. What are the values that you're trying to express here by changing the organization? I think this is particularly important for, for women because, frankly, the women that I have uh, coached have been uh, reticent in some cases to display, for example, vulnerabilities. They believe that because they, they are afraid that the world is ruled by males and masculine that somehow vulnerability is a debility, and it's not. It's actually an asset, especially when you have the credibility uh, to run something, which most of the women that I've worked with have. Mm. So uh, those are some of the aspects of the guide, and then there, there are others that are equally important. It, it seems like so, so many companies that I've worked with don't even bother doing any of these things you're talking about. They just kind of you know, give you a mandate, this is, this is what we're going to do without any context whatsoever. And um, it just seems like it makes a huge difference in terms of morale, motivation, profitability. Like, well, like, especially in the opportunity to inspire versus just motivate. I mean, we, we throw those off of our tongue as though they're, you know, kind of the same. And, of course, they're not. You know, motivation has to do with those extrinsic things, you know, the, the pay that we're going to get or the carrot and the stick kind of uh, way of getting people to do what you want them to do where intrinsic motivation is really inspiration. It, we do things because we want to do them, because we're inspired by the values that they represent and because we want to be something, we want to be part of something that's bigger than we are. Uh, that requires collaboration, it requires empathy, it requires all of the traits that, you know, frankly, women are quite good at, um, you know, much much better than most men. And uh, I think I think it's it's a it's a real opportunity for women. One of the things that bothers me when I'm when I'm, when I'm coaching women, one of the things that I say to them is, look, first and foremost, you have to be yourself, and then we'll work the rest of it out. Uh, because you wouldn't be in this position if you weren't competent. So you already have a leg up. You already have the ability to lead. Now all we have to do is to make sure that you understand that you can bring your whole self here. And by doing that, you're going to inspire rather than just motivate and distinguish yourself from everybody else. It's something that women are particularly good at. I I, I totally agree on that. I want to uh, shift just a little bit. You talk in the book about it's really important that you sh- you show or tell people how you gained competence in your chosen field. And what I find is this is difficult for a lot of women. So I would like to know how you suggest that women work this into conversations. Sure. Um, well, here's the here's the thing. I I I, class, I I I actually divide this into three particular um, categories. One is work experience, and of course that speaks for itself. So you've held a certain number of positions that have led to the one that you're in, and if if that's if those positions are only tangentially relevant, it's still important to mention them or to know them. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily mention them all the time, but to know them. What is it that makes me qualified? What have I done in the past? What work experience have I had? that really qualifies me for this. The second is life experience. And for most women, that's the most important one. Most women have had life experiences that men have not had. So life experience itself is a category that I really emphasize when I'm speaking with women that might not be because of the nature of our you know, our industrial system. There aren't a lot of women that have had, that have had you know, substantial or a lot of, of work experience just because of the nature of the way we have you know, treated um, and treated them in the past. So, work experience, life experience is most important, and then education, which of course we know that women are excelling right now, uh, certainly uh, far more than men are. So, uh, 
those three things need to be emphasized, work experience, life experience, particularly for women, and education. Uh, and in doing so, women can be much more revealing than they are about who they are and what their values are and why uh, they want to lead the change that they're leading. That's much more inspiring than any man standing up and saying, well, I'm qualified for this because of these jobs, uh, but not mentioning what the values are and the, the worth of moving toward change that is meaningful as opposed to just profitable. So basically work in stories about what their values are or how their experience leads them to the conclusions that they're coming to or what the changes that they want to have happen. Absolutely, and it yeah. doesn't really matter what field those come from. I, I frequently, uh, in speaking to groups, uh, bring up my experience as a parent, which a parent, which are, are actually metaphorically perfect uh, for the way that I would lead and continue to lead, you know, change in my own company and advise others to, to in theirs, because they're common experiences. Uh, these are the things that that people relate to as human beings, not just as you know pieces of uh, economic. Uh, uh, you know, or you know, digital economic uh, advantage. Mm-hmm. So, telling stories about who you are, what your values are, and how you've made those real in your life, regardless of the of the um, particular avenue, uh, is really valuable. Excellent. Could you tell me the story about the speaker and the thank you notes? Oh, sure. This is one that actually gave me that one that was actually demonstrated to me by a friend of mine named Steve Farber, who. Uh, we were both students of a, a teacher named David Steinelrast, whose uh, whose life's work is around living gratefully. And I I was particularly keen on this idea that gratitude was something that needed to be expressed more frequently. And Steve used to go in front of audiences and say, "Well, look, you know, uh, how many of you have received a uh, a note or a letter that you knew was sincere?" Uh, in your life that really express gratitude in a way that you appreciated. How many of you have have received such a note? And hands would go up, and then he would say, well, how many of you have had it for a year? And hands would stay up, five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. The record for that is 40 years. That wow. One person in an audience of 500 had kept the note for 40 years. And I asked him, uh, I said, do you remember what it said? And he said, I sure do, and he pulled it out of his wallet. Wow. Uh, and it was a letter from a second grade teacher, and it had all of the elements in it that one would expect in a note or an expression that one would absolutely know was sincere. It was specific. It was handwritten. It was uh, it was uh, an actual. The person actually knew uh, what you know what had occurred, uh, what the result of the person's actions had been, and it was only it was less than half a page. But it was valuable enough that this person had kept it for 40 years. Now, there are a lot of examples in the book of that. But what it does is, is demonstrate to us that the expression of gratitude is one way that we know we can build trust, and yet somehow we feel in business that we can't do that in a sincere way. We tend to make it cursory with you know, habitual awards or habitual statements, like it's really wonderful to be here tonight in Des Moines you know, eating dry chicken or whatever it might be. <laughs> And, and think that that covers its base. Um, there are so many examples of uh, people who have actually expressed gratitude after thinking through what it was the person did and expressing it in a way that touches the heart. That's Yeah, and it, when it touches the heart, it's so much more um, we connect person to person as opposed to 
the thing you're talking about, I'm glad to be here in Des Moines, and you feel disconnected, like it's not real. Um, yeah, that's right. In, in fact, there's a story in the book by uh, about a woman that I just actually touched base with here a couple of weeks ago named Karen Chang, who used to run all of the retail branches for Schwab, and she was acknowledging her regional managers that it had been a particularly tough year, and and in the writing of what she had to say, she realized that they'd been gone an average of 110 nights from their own home during the year because it was a particularly tough year, so they'd been on the road a lot. And she said, I, I don't want you to think that I take that lightly. Uh, she said, because I travel a lot. And she said, I know that 120 nights a year is a is too many not to have a hug from someone you love. Wow. So anyone in that group that had a family or a spouse didn't just hear that or understand it. They related to it. Exactly. It, it really, we get a picture in our head when somebody says something like that, of getting hugged by somebody we love. Mm-hmm. Uh, to finish up, I wonder if you would be willing to talk about uh, declaring the future and describing it uh, in a way to make it compelling to others. And you had a quote from John Shar, and I wondered if you could tell us that quote and then give us some more information on that. Sure. John was a you know political theorist, and, and of course, one of the problems with uh, with writing a book like this is that many of the examples are really big, and you know people that read it they don't think that the principles necessarily apply, but they all do. Uh, John was a political theorist that I was fortunate enough to meet when I was doing work in the Soviet Union, and he uh, he had a way of expressing himself. Uh, this, by the way, is the most difficult thing for. Uh, for executives to do is to uh, to really uh, to really grasp that people need to see with their imagination what the future looks like. Uh, that they need they need to see themselves in it. What Shar said, and he was talking in a political sense, was the future is not some place we are going, but one we are creating. The paths that are the paths are not to be found, but made. And the activity of making them changes both the maker and the destination. So, you know, once more, the future is not some place we're going, but one we are creating. The paths are not to be found, but made. And the activity of making them changes both the maker and the destination. That's a very big idea. But if you relate it to people like Thomas Jefferson, Anwar Sadat, you know, Mother Teresa, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, the people that we know have changed the world with declaration, that's exactly what Char is talking about. It's not as though we know exactly how we're going to get to the place we're going. Mm-hmm. But what we do know is that if we declare it to be true, it's going to change us and that we're going to move along a path that is unmarked. And that is going to change the destination. We may not get to the place we originally said, but we'll get to a wonderful place. And it's also going to change us because it's going to give us a sense of our real humanity that we are here as change agents. We're here to create a future that we don't have. Uh, that's so beautiful. It's such a beautiful thought, and and it's so true that we each can create a future that is better for ourselves and for the people around us. And it's just a wonderful thought to end on, and I just want to thank you so much for being part of our show and helping all the women that are listening to this. Well, Sabrina, broadcast. I want to thank you for what you do and uh, and congratulate you on the success that you've had. I hope we uh, connect in the future to be terrific. Okay, thank you so much.
To get free samples of my new program, The Winning Career Video Training, go to www.womensleadershipsuccess.com, sign up on the form that appears on the screen after a moment. And thanks for listening. Thank you for joining your host, Sabrina Brahm, on another Women's Leadership Podcast. If you have questions or comments, you can email her at sabrina at sabrinabrahm.com. Since 1989, Sabrina and her team have helped hundreds of women managers, business leaders, and entrepreneurs with valuable trainings, articles, books, and executive coaching. For additional tips, interviews, and free access to Great Leaders Today mini-course, visit www.womensleadershipsuccess.com.